0: Thank you very much, Dr. Carson. Uh, We have three panelists now. um, uh, Colleagues in uh, teaching and ministry, uh, Dr. Jeff Oshwald, Dr. Tim Mashke, Dr. James Veltz. I think maybe if you guys would all come up and sit, I've been told I believe that Dr. Oshwald is first, and uh, then somebody second, and after that someone will be third. And a few minutes of conversation and then some uh, response from Dr. Carson, and hopefully there will be some time for questions also from the the congregation. I feel like it's a congregation.
1: got a red light, but there. Okay. So thank you very much uh, for that presentation. Uh, It was great to hear you uh, help us through those parables, and uh, I don't know if there's anything, well, there's one point I want to ask about the second parable, but in regard to the the Good Samaritan, where I would like to see the conversation go is actually to sort of build on what you've presented so far. Because what I've found is that the problem for many of our students um, is how do you preach these parables year after year after year? And so often in the exegetical discussions, even in hermeneutical approaches to parables, there's an assumption that the ideal reader or hearer is always the person hearing this for the very first time. Uh, the uh, The Pharisee and the tax collector is a good example where people complain that the roles have reversed. Uh, The Good Samaritan is another one where uh, it's interesting that in uh, the Greek manuscript tradition this was referred to as the parable about the man who fell among thieves, whereas we immediately wanted to be the Good Samaritan and we want to be that Samaritan. Um, How do these parables work when we've heard them before and we already know the end of the story? can they continue to speak things to us? And that takes us back into more of the nature of how parable and even metaphor uh, works and that sort of the creative possibilities there. That, that these um, stories we have heard before can still be new for us and can bring out further reflection. Uh, you hinted at that a little bit with your distinction between Jesus's point and Luke's point. Um, I think that's an interesting question for us to ponder on, especially if we're uh, thinking in terms of an inspired text and who is the real author here. Um, So is Jesus the Good Samaritan? At what point do you start to ask that question? At what point do you reflect on that? Uh, And can we, uh, and this gets back to your introductory point, uh, can we legitimately make that claim? There's been a shift, you said, toward narrativity. But I think uh, many feel that there are no rules in narrative and that a story can mean whatever you want it to mean, and yet we don't want to say a text can mean whatever you want it to mean. Um, uh, It takes me uh, back a little bit to uh, uh, thinking about uh, Luther's sermon on the Good Samaritan uh, where he says, The Samaritan, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, That, of course, that he could take it for granted that this was the way everyone would hear the parable uh, is very striking. Um, You've said you're going to talk about purpose of parables this afternoon, so I won't try to anticipate that too much. Uh, But I think it's, again, important uh, to at least sort of note the idea of the way parables draw you into a world and in a way uh, that... For instance, Kierkegaard describes as deception, they allow you to set aside your prejudices for a moment and perhaps see something from a new perspective. And that the only way to bring a person, uh, for instance, who might have the mindset of the rich man to the understanding you brought us to about the use of wealth would be to lure him, so almost to trick him into this story uh, where he will look at himself from a new perspective, I think it's very interesting to sort of reflect on um, parables in that way. Again, going back to the Good Samaritan, the, uh, the man's question uh, really, te poiesas, I think, is very interesting there. It's not what should I do in the future, but sort of having done what. That is, I might already be there, but what's the standard so I can take the standard and compare it against my life now and see if I've measured up or not. Uh, And then the question of Jesus that you didn't dwell on much was the, how do you read? That we're looking at the same texts, but interpretation, reading, understanding here is going to be very important. uh, And that's sort of the question I think that comes up so often with the parables themselves. How do you read them? Uh, What guidance can we give uh, preachers and teachers? In the use of these uh, parables today. Let me uh, just raise one question and then I know I should probably uh, pass the mic down. Uh, and I'll have to share a little bit more about our dinner conversation last night. Uh, we somehow got on the topic of the unjust steward. And when we were talking about that parable, uh, someone raised the question about the friends who welcome you into the eternal dwellings. And rightly so, I think you cautioned us about not focusing too much on that uh, in terms of trying to analyze exactly what those eternal dwellings might be and so on. That's not really the main point of the parable. Now, When we come to the the rich man and Lazarus, Now, you you didn't sort of raise the historical question of is this a parable or not. And uh, there are still a lot of people who wonder that. And uh, if it's not a parable, then what is the point of the story and uh, how do we look at the details in it? And I tell my students I've run across uh, both kinds of Christians, that is, those who say, I could never be happy in heaven if I can see the torments of the lost and those who say, I could never be happy in heaven if I couldn't. And I'm not sure which is the, <laughs> which is the bigger pastoral problem there. But if, if we're treating this as a parable, how much does it actually teach us about heaven and hell, other than the fact, I think, that you closed on, that this is not where we want to be? Um, I don't think there was anything you said I disagree with, uh, it reminded me of uh, one of C.S. Lewis's statements that the, the door to hell is locked from the inside. Uh, it's not that people are locked in there. They're locking uh, God out. Uh, and yet I still wonder how much of that should we be deriving from this parable in terms of whether people repent and, and some of the questions you got into there. I think I will... Uh, stop there and I guess we're just going to pass the mic down the line.
2: Thank you very much, Jeff and Don. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, Don and I were at Cambridge together in the early 70s and that seems like such a long time ago and in some ways it doesn't seem like that long a time ago. But uh, those were interesting times. They were bad times in Britain, times of the coal strikes and shutting off power. Uh, But they were great times also, the people that you got to know and the great, great professors at whose feet that you sat. Uh, Don, thanks very much. Thank you for coming to our campus and uh, thank you for your presentation. Um, I too, like Jeff Oshwalt, my colleague, um, uh, kind of wished that the theory part of parables had been broached in, in this particular section. Um, if I could just say something about that, um, in my own study I've come to the conclusion that there are basically uh, two and a half kinds of parables. Um, there are kingdom parables characterized by Matthew 13 which use pretty standard rabbinic imagery things like kings and wedding feasts and um, uh, vineyards, things like that. And those are parables that really talk about the reign and rule of God in Jesus Christ, when that comes and what it looks like. And then by contrast, and Luke has many of the second class, there are the what you could call sanctification or human response parables. And those are the ones that talk about how we respond to what God does. And they're characterized basically by non-standard imagery. So you have, uh, um, you have friends and it's at midnight and people need loaves and you have uh, uh, widows who are asking for uh, uh, judgment in their cases and so forth. And in these parables, interestingly enough, God is often portrayed when you do the decoding in an odd way, often uncaring. It's like the man who doesn't want to answer his door when the neighbor comes to knock or the unjust judge who does not want to have the widow's cause pleaded and so forth. Then there are the halfway house parables. Kind of combine these two, uh, God's activity and our response, and they kind of come into, you, you come into them on the response side and then you start to think more deeply on the God side. Now, I think that's maybe where we are on the Good Samaritan, and I'd like to focus my comments on that, maybe preceded by the observation that there will not be golf in heaven. In fact, there will be no sports in heaven, to my great despair, because all sports are predicated upon mistakes. And and believe me, if... Every putt goes in, you lose interest after a <laughs> while. So there can certainly be no competitive sports because somebody would have to be making mistakes and, and golf would become boring in five minutes. Uh, but uh, to return to the, uh, to the good Samaritan, I, I would like to see it, done as a two-pass buffet. This is the way I would like to characterize it. And uh, Jeff, uh, thank you very much for your observation about um, what is it like to have a repeated exposure. I think it's it's building on your insight there. Um, here's the first pass of the buffet as you come in into uh, from Luke's story, and you really set Don, you really set up the context very nicely on this. And the guy asks a question about inheriting uh, eternal life and then he asks the question, and who is my neighbor, and then Jesus Jesus takes him up on this, and he goes on and tells the story. But his final question, as you pointed out, is not who then is the neighbor, but Jesus switches the question to who proved to be neighbor to the man, which means that that's kind of Mr. Questioner. The real question that you should have asked not who is my neighbor. So it's not your question. And this, who proved to be neighbor, is going to return you back to your first question, your second question, and I'm going to just change it a little bit now. I'm going to return you back to your first question. Your first question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so, I'm going to say to you, then you go and do likewise. Doesn't that make you uncomfortable, Mr. Questioner? Just like my first answer to you made you uncomfortable when I said, do this and you will live. So my second answer, which is also the answer to your first and real question, makes you uncomfortable as well. Now let's, let's proceed on. We did this, Don, just a little bit. You went on to the next pericope. I think the next pericope is the key to this pericope. So the first pass of the buffet makes it look like you're talking about what you should do. And I'm going to answer you that actually, what does God say in Micah? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He actually says things like this. In Amos, he says that you should not be defrauding the poor. So for those who think in the first pass of the buffet that the the parable is I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you know, you're not entirely wrong. You're not entirely wrong. But go on, please, to the next story, the story of Mary and Martha. This is the corrective. This is actually the antidote to stopping at the first pass of the buffet because isn't the story of Mary and Martha someone who is actually trying to serve the neighbor? And Jesus says, no, that's not really the way it should be. So now let's rewind. Let's rewind and go back to our pericope once again. And let's take the second pass to the buffet. So Mary and Martha drives us back to say, while I desire mercy and not sacrifice, might be a real interesting way to read that. Maybe that's not the full story. Can we listen to that again? Now we take a look, and we take a look in the Greek. And we see verbs like ekdio, to strip off. And we see nouns like plagas, beatings, stripes. And we see things like traumata, wounds. And now in this pass of the buffet, we start thinking of Isaiah 53. Because we've got those nouns and verbs in the suffering servant. And so now I'll take up, Jeff, your challenge that um, uh, we listen to this again. And now as we start decoding the story, and decode we must, we sta- now start to wonder that maybe, as Martin Franzman once famously said, the exegete must never say, of course. And if Luther said, of course, he's the Good Samaritan, then he maybe shouldn't have said that. Because I'm not so sure that it is, of course, he is the Good Samaritan. What happens if Jesus is the beaten man? And what happens if then, when he says, who proved to be neighbor, he is pushing the man into the role of the Good Samaritan. And what does that Good Samaritan do? He embraces the beaten man. That, I submit, is the second pass of the buffet answer to the main question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer is, embrace the beaten man.
3: Thank you, Jim. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Carson. Uh, it's been several decades since I've studied the parables in any depth. Actually, my last class was uh, taught by the late Martin Charlemann, uh using his little book, uh, Proclaiming the Parables, which I used in the parish and I used in campus ministry. But I'm uh, kind of reviewing uh, that material. Um, Much of what Charlemagne talked about was, again, what uh, Jim alluded to, the idea of kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is active when, and it's kind of each parable is supposed to uh, do something like that. If I remember Charlemagne, I I wrote down my notes here. Uh, God is active redemptively in order to reestablish his rule over and among men. This work is like, and then he would kind of, that would be the the parable then coming. Uh, But I also noted that Charlemagne did not include these to as parables, uh, because he didn't think there was quite that kingdom action. I, he, he talked about them then as illustrative stories, and I heard you speaking more as as narrative, as illustrative stories, beyond maybe just kingdom language. And I guess I'd like to hear more, and I think Jeff alluded to it more, uh, how you unpack there, how you kind of walk through the text so that you avoid allegorizing, because that's, that's still the, the tendency, that's the Luther Samaritan image that keeps coming back I think that, that Jesus is our Samaritan and over and over I looked a number of passages where Luther talks about that it's not just this sermon but throughout his writing kind of goes back to that and it's like how do we avoid that and yet get the substance and I think the justification emphasis that you pointed out was very very helpful for me how do we find that God justifying us in a text like this that isn't quite as obvious uh, on first reading so if you can kind of help us on that then.
0: I speak as one who has authority. It's your turn.
4: Well, thank you for those uh, helpful comments, observations, questions. Um, uh, In fact, in this case, I think it might be wise if if I start in reverse order. If you don't mind, because it raises some fundamental questions about what parables are and, and, and so forth. And w- when I approach this matter this afternoon, I am not going to give a whole uh, disquisition in this area, so I'll give part of it now and spare myself some time this afternoon. <laughs> um, there is, of course, a long history of parables that uh, uh, seminary students learn at some point. And um, the, the kind of allegorizing uh, tendencies of the fathers, at least some of the fathers, was partly overturned by the reformational leaders and um, was thoroughly overturned by um, Adolf Huliker uh, in the um, uh, 19th century who argued very strongly that parables have only one point and to try to make them say anything more than that was a mistake and then of course um, Joachim Jeremias um, developed that further granted that Hüliger was right then he thought that when the stories Uh, gave more allegorizing details for want of a better expression like the parable of the sower where the seed is the word and The the different soils are different kinds of receptivity and and so forth. This indicated later editorial redaction. So out of these sorts of um, comparative studies, he eventually had his ten rules of parable transmission and so on. And so so the the, the whole history has become extremely complex. There's a very good survey by Craig Blomberg, who insists that there is some sort of allegorizing uh, comment, uh, degree that goes on uh, within the parables themselves, uh, given by the historical Jesus. To my mind, one of the most helpful analysis, though, of this whole discussion remains that of Hans Weythus, but it, it turns in part on thinking clearly about what, what allegory is. Um, um, you'll recall in Galatians chapter 4, uh, where our texts variously say in the matter of the two women, two covenants, two mountains, and so on, which things are allegorical or which things may be taken figuratively. <speaking in Hebrew> Um, the trouble, and that's the only place where the verb allegoreo is found in the, in the New Testament. Um, uh, what is meant by allegory? I mean, um, in the ancient world it could mean quite a lot of different things. It re- really meant something, it meant something like saying something adjacently or in another way or the like. If you compare the kind of allegory that Philo uses, where he retells a whole lot of the Old Testament narrative and claims that what he's doing is giving an allegorical interpretation. The key thing, it seems to me, is this, and a lot of um, uh, modern rhetoricians and uh, uh, English teachers say rather similar things. The key thing is this. The interpretive key to understanding the Old Testament text is not found within the Old Testament text, but in an extra textual grid. So he says that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are real historical figures, but he says that their real meaning are the three fundamental principles of a Greek education. Now, with the best will in the world, it's very hard to get that out of Genesis. In other words, the interpretive key is extra textual. So, so that when you find the allegories of, of, of children's stories and this sort of thing too, or, um, it, 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 the key comes from outside the text itself. Well, what Hans Veda suggests is that although there are elements in some parables of Jesus that have extra textual referentiality. They point outside the world of the narrative itself to something outside in the real world. In every case, they are tightly tied to the structure of the story itself. The key is given from within the structure, which is precisely why they're not allegory. And that's also why what Paul is doing in Galatians 4 is not allegory as well, since he's claiming that the distinctions that he's making are grounded in the text of Genesis. You don't have to be outside the text of Genesis to derive Paul's points, you see? So they're allegory in the sense of saying something in a slightly different way. They're not allegory in the sense of needing an extra textual key. So I find that the whole bringing up of the question of allegory is a slightly misleading one because the term is so slippery for us today. You have to get back to um, uh, some sort of distinction of the sort that Hans Vader uh, makes. And that brings up the larger question then of, of, of uh, the purpose of parables, how they function, and so on. Um, it's worth even going one stage, far, stage farther back. If you look up every instance where parable is used in the Septuagint and in the Greek New Testament, Testament you discover that the range of meaning um, is approximately the same as Hebrew mashal. Parabalay are very close to mashalim, and that includes um, um, proverbs, wise utterances, beatitudes, enigmas, riddles, and so on. What we've been talking about here is just one subset of that, namely narrative parables. Mm-hmm. But there are all kinds of things that are parabolic in any biblical sense of the term that are not narrative parables. And, and, and so to have a very specialized discussion about what parables are and what we mean as narrative parables can, in fact, be slightly misleading. We may be demanding that they be more specific um, and, and controlled than, than they really were. They may have been a good deal more flexible to begin with. And so if I come back to Jim Vels's comment about two and a half different chants, yeah, it's possible to break them down in a lot of different ways. But even the so-called kingdom parables, even though the narrative elements are not uh, not shocking by and large, I take your point, nevertheless, uh, the kingdom parables tend to be shocking for a first century hearer um, precisely because the kingdom comes out to be doing something very much unexpected. And so some of the parables in Luke come out uh, uh, very much unexpected because the, the God figure appears different and so on. So I begin to ask myself, how much conceptual difference is there between the kingdom being somewhat unexpected or God being somewhat unexpected? I, I, I'm not sure that the, the classifications are as, as, as tight, as uh, that clean lines can be drawn for all of these things. As, as <coughs> the, the, the analyses are heuristically useful, but I'm not sure that they're always quite as clean as... Uh, as we sometimes make them out to be. Now let me go back to the beginning and just say one or two things briefly. Um, The pastoral question first raised by by Jeff, how are our hearers to hear them, uh, is a problem, of course. If I may speak outside the Lutheran tradition, um, there are huge advantages to preaching constantly from uh, the lectionary because you cover things comprehensively over a one year, two year, three year cycle. Uh, there can be some disadvantages too, of course, uh, and my own tradition puts more emphasis on um, uh, preaching all the way through books, doing, doing series of expositions, and in that case you don't have quite as much focused re- repetition year after year after year. Um, so. Um, I don't face the problem quite the same way that those who who keep themselves tightly tied to electionary um, might do. Uh, Mind you, there are other problems, but we won't try to uh, sort out all our denominational differences today. Um, If you ask, we'll we'll, we'll stop short of of Jim's interpretation for a moment, but if you ask at what point do you say Jesus is the good Samaritan, um, you're right. The the question really becomes a textual one. You you cannot possibly... um, um, make that inferential jump just out of dogmatic considerations or even mere analogical concerns. There have to be textual reasons for it, otherwise, it's uh, mere speculation. The, the trouble is that once, once the, the textual bits of evidence are, um, are not right on the surface of the text, but that are bound up with slightly elusive inferences and this sort of thing from the text, one certainty goes down just a wee bit. And in the, the, the pericope itself, um, uh, the, 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 the reason for the parable the, the transparent reason for the parable is to set up the question that Jesus finally asks about the neighbor um, uh, but then when you set that whole pericope in the context of everything in Luke's gospel especially from 951 at the beginning of the travelogue on to the cross, when you set it into that framework, it's hard not to see these things. When you keep asking the question, how does this fit into the narrative of taking Jesus to the cross? And, and, and so it seems to me that the question is rightly uh, to be adduced at that point. Um, in terms of uh, Jim's uh, 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 exegesis, in which the question is, who embraces the beaten man? Um, It it reminds me of the kind of two-level readings that some were encouraging us to take in John's Gospel a few few, uh, years ago. But but my problem with it is that the... the, uh, is twofold. First, the words that are used, like trauma and uh, and, and, and words for beating and things like that, are not exclusively used with respect to Christ's um, um, uh, 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 sacrifice. Uh, they they are not tightly tied in the New Testament exclusively to atonement related words and and so the question becomes how much speculation is is being resorted to here uh, on the basis of words that can be used in that way but are not demonstrably used in that way here Um, uh, it's it's one of those things that's hard to overturn but it means that the second pass really is is not somehow enriching or or deepening the, the first pass's reading. It's really overthrowing it in some fundamental way. Um, now, the, the overthrow of what neighbor is is within the story on the first pass B- because the question is clearly changed by Jesus. That's all right. I think that's very insightful. But then to go back and reread everything so that the real question is not who is the Good Samaritan in any sense, really, so much as who is the, 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 the broken person, and thus who embraces the broken, the, the broken beaten man. Um, to be honest, I confess I still find that a bit of a stretch. You may be right, but I would need, I would need some more convincing along those lines. Well, I've probably said enough. I'm, I'm happy to bring up further questions that one or the other has brought up, if you want me to, farther down the line, but I've rabbited on far enough
0: we We're officially uh at the time, but um uh, I wonder if we might have uh, opportunity for a question or two from the audience from the group if someone uh i don't see Mike, so I guess you'll have to yell yep.
4: it is vitally important to see that part of any preachers job is repetition not only repetition in a merely pedagogical sense but the recreating of the mind, the reforming of the mind after the mind of God and and it is right to think of efficacy in preaching nevertheless the first hearers did hear all kinds of reversal taking place and if people know the stories well they don't think of the reversal, it has to be pointed out to them again and again applied in such a way that people feel the bite along those lines. So the, 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 the question still remains there, how to go about preaching in such a way that, that the power of the thing as in some sense reversal um, is, is, still, is still felt. It, 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 it bites wounds and heals. Now, but at the same time I still acknowledge your point. I, all I would warn against is, is, um, is another kind of reductionism. Uh, uh, just because repetition is good and because the word is effective and reshapes our mind. Therefore, uh, we cannot infer, we have no responsibility to try to think through ways to make this fresh.
2: Yes, thank you for that. That was a very insightful question. And I think it goes back to um, Don's recent comments about parable interpretation and so on. When we're dealing with parables, if we can just stick with this, there are at least three things that have to be done and Don, I'll have to tell you, I think in past parable interpretation this is certainly true of Ulliger, he confuses some of these. One is decoding the parable, I mean who does what stand for, like the parable of the wicked tenants of the vineyard, you know, who are the tenants and who's the guy who owns it and all that, And you can kind of say who that is. But then the second stage is What's the meaning of the story as, stu- as such? Okay? The meaning of the story, what's going to happen? Then there's a third factor. What is the impact of that story? In other words, how does that function? Does that function, as it certainly did, as accusation to the leaders, right? which is different than decoding the story or saying what the story means? Now, this is sort of a law of gospel kind of thing. You know, how is it striking you? But you see, other people listening to that same story can be quite encouraged, for example, people like us, who are part of those to whom the vineyard has been rented out later. See? We're, we're not these other people in the story. It's a source of joy. So it sort of depends upon your audience here and what, what, what is the impact, the illocutionary force if I might say, of that particular story. That can certainly change by circumstances.
1: Yeah. Yes, Jeff. Yeah, uh, please. uh, One of the reasons I raised the question in the first point is because I think this is a place where, at least, sort of, we exegetes, we who tend to treat parables for the sake of readers, uh, have not served our readers well. And that tends to be that if you've understood the parable, you've sort of got it down. Now, everyone (laughs) likes to quote the definition of parables by Dodd that they tease the mind into active reflection. And yet in terms of the way we handle them in commentaries and even in sort of published sermons, I'm not sure how we're actually acknowledging that. And uh, again, uh, from a a very different angle, um, when uh, Umberto Eco talks about how you deal with metaphors he sort of acknowledges that there, there are no sort of dead or closed metaphors unless you sort of culturally agree to do that. You just sort of let them die, and you could almost use good Samaritan as a, an example there. What does good Samaritan mean? Well, it has nothing to do with Samaritans, and it has almost nothing to do with the story. It just means a nice person who helps strangers. Now, we can, with a little energy, sort of open that up again and ask people to reflect anew on what it means the way Jesus tells the story um, and actually it's, it's interesting that when you were going over the context leading up to this you didn't mention that right before this Jesus goes into a village of Samaritans and they don't accept him because he is going to Jerusalem so you can't just let a Samaritan become a good guy and uh, that's, uh, we tend to devalue, I think, these later in some ways even more mature reflections on parables as Christians because we, we sort of focus all on that first impact. Um, I, I see Tim there, uh, Tim and I were recently talked about parables earlier and when we were talking about the Good Samaritan, he reminded us that in all the Gospels there's only one person who takes mercy on anybody. If you look up all the cases where this verb occurs, it's always, well, with, let's say, with two questionable cases. You have the Good Samaritan and you have the Father and the Prodigal Son. Every other case, it's explicitly identified as almost always Jesus, but once my Heavenly Father. Now, how does that impact the way we read it? Um, And I'll I'll close with this because I wanted to mention it earlier and, and didn't, but I think one of the most helpful things I've seen in this is, is a point, again, our, our guest has made, that any passage of scripture, but parables in especially uh, in their case, need to be read in light of the whole Bible story. Mm-hmm. I mean, why is Jesus telling this? Not just then, but why is it part of his word for us now? And uh, what is this message still speaking, even if we have... 2,000 years of a history of interpretation, how are these metaphors still fresh and still revealing God to us?
0: That sounded like something in the middle of a day, a middle of a conversation, which will continue after lunch. Um, I'm feeling not quite drunk, but slightly inebriated with power. So we'll uh, draw this to a close. Let's thank our guests.